Keeping Up with Lizzie by Irving Bockler Illustrated by W.H.D. Kerner Harper and Brothers Publishers New York and London Copyright 1910-1911 by Harper and Brothers Printed in the United States of America Published March 1911 CN to the Loving and Beloved Mr. One Dear I dedicate this little book chapter 1 in which the leading tradesmen of Pointview become a board of assessors too in which Lizzie returns to her home, having met a queen and acquired an accent and a fiancé three, in which Lizzie descends from a great height four, in which the ham war has its beginning v, in which Lizzie exerts an influence on the affairs of the rich and great six, in which the pursuit of Lizzie becomes highly serious seven, in which the Honorable Socrates Potter catches up with Lizzie a duel with automobiles with his mind on the subject of extravagance. Seven dollars a barrel. I wanted ye to tell Mr. Potter about your travels, says Sam. Lizzie dropped into a chair and began to cry. Bill and I got together often and talked of the old happy days we set out for a tramp over the big farm. I'm a candidate for new honors. Three days later I drove to the villa. The boy exerted his charms upon my lady Warburton. She led us into the bedroom. Their eyes were wide with wonder keeping up with Lizzie keeping up with Lizzie in which the leading tradesmen of Pointview become a board of assessors. The Honorable Socrates Potter was the only scientific man in the village of Pointview, Connecticut. In every point of manhood he was far ahead of his neighbors. In a way he had outstripped himself, for, while his ideas were highly modern, he clung to the dress and manners that prevailed in his youth. He wore broadcloth every day, and a choker, and chewed tobacco, and never permitted his work to interfere with the even tenor of his conversation. He loved the old times and fashions, and had a drawling tongue and often spoke in the dialect of his fathers, loving the sound of it. His satirical mood was sure to be flavored with clipped words and changed tenses. The stranger often took him for a hayseed, but on further acquaintance opened his mouth in astonishment, for S.O.C. Potter, as many called him, was a man of insight and learning and of a quality of wit herein revealed. He used to call himself an attorney and peacemaker. But he was more than that. He was the attorney and friend of all his clients, and the philosopher of his community. If one man threatened another with the law in that neighborhood, he was apt to do it in these terms. We'll see what S.O.C. Potter has to say about that. All right. We'll see. The other would answer, and both parties would be sure to show up at the lawyer's office. Then, probably, Socrates would try his famous lock and key expedient. He would sit them down together, lock the door, and say, Now, boys, I don't believe in getting twelve men for a job that two can do better. And generally, he would make them agree. He had an office over the store of Samuel Henshaw, and made a specialty of deeds, titles, epigrams, and witticisms. He was a bachelor who called now and then at the home of Miss Betsy Smead, a wealthy spinster of Pointview, but nothing had ever come of it. He sat with his feet on his desk and his mind on the subject of extravagance. When he was doing business he sat like other men, but when his thought assumed a degree of elevation his feet rose with it. He began his story by explaining that it was all true but the names. Illustration. With his mind on the subject of extravagance. This is the balloon age, said he, with a merry twinkle in his gray eyes. The inventor has led us into the skies. The odor of gasoline is in the path of the eagle. Our thoughts are between earth and heaven, 
Our prices have followed our aspirations in the upward flight. Now here is Sam Henshaw. Sam? Why, he's a merchant prince o point view, grocery business, had a girl, name o Lizzie, smart, and as pretty as a wax doll. Dan Pettigrew, the noblest flower o the young manhood o point view, fell in love with her. No wonder. We were all fond o Lizzie. They were a handsome couple, and together about half the time. Well, Sam began to aspire, and nothing would do for Lizzie but the Smythe School at Hardcastle at $700 a year. So they rigged her up splendid, and away she went. From that day she set the pace for this community. Dan had to keep up with Lizzie, and so his father, Bill Pettigrew, sent him to Harvard. Other girls started in the race, and the first we knew there was a big field in this maiden handicap. Well, Sam had been aspirin for about three months, when he began to perspire. The extras up at Hardcastle had exceeded his expectations. He was going a hot pace to keep up with Lizzie, and it looked as if his morals was melting away. I was in the northern part of the county one day, and saw some wonderful, big, red, tasty apples. What you doing with your apples, says I to the grower. I've sent the most of them to Samuel Henshaw, O Pointview, and he sold them on commission, says he. What do you get for em? I asked. Two dollars and ten cents a barrel, says he. The next time I went into Sam's store there were the same red apples that came out o that orchard in the northern part o the county. How much are these apples? I says. Seven dollars a barrel, says Sam. Illustration. Seven dollars a barrel. How is it that you get seven dollars a barrel and only return two dollars and ten cents to the grower? I says. Sam stuttered and changed color. I'd been his lawyer for years, and I always talked plain to Sam. Wall, the fact is, says he, with a laugh and a wink, I sold these apples to my clerk. Sam, you're wasting your talents, I says. Go into the railroad business. Sam was kind o oh, shamefaced. It costs so much to live I have to make a decent profit somewhere, says he. If you had a daughter to educate, you know the reason. I bought a bill o' goods and noticed that ham and butter were up two cents a pound and flour four cents a sack, and other things in proportion. I didn't say a word, but I see that Sam proposed to tax the community for the education o' that Lizzie girl. Folks began to complain, but the tax on each wasn't heavy, and a good many people owed Sam and wasn't in shape to quit him. Then Sam had the best store in the village, and everybody was kind o' proud of it. So he stood this assessment o' Sam's, and by a general tax paid for the education o' Lizzie. She made friends, and sailed around in automobiles, and spent a part o' the Christmas holidays with the daughter o' Mr. Beverly Gottrich on Fifth Avenue, and young Beverly Gottrich brought her home in his big red runabout. Oh, that was a great day in point view, that red runabout day of our history when the pitcher was broken at the fountain and they that looked out of the windows trembled. Dan Pettigrew was home from Harvard for the holidays, and he and Lizzie met at a church party. They held their heads very high and seemed to despise each other and everybody else. Word went around that it was all off between them. It seems that they had riz, not risen, but riz, far above each other. Now it often happens that when the young ascend the tower owe their aspirations and look down upon the earth its average inhabitant seems no larger to them than a red ant. Sometimes there's nobody in sight, that is, no real body, nothing but clouds and rainbows and kings and queens and their families. Now Lizzie and Dan were both up in their towers and looking down, 
and that was probably the reason they didn't see each other. Right away a war began between the rival houses O'Henshaw and Pettigrew. The first we knew Sam was building a new house with a tower on it, by Jingo, and hardwood finish inside and half an acre in the dooryard. The tower was for Lizzie. It signalized her rise in the community. It put her one flight above anybody in point view. As the house rose, up went Sam's prices again. I went over to the store and bought a week's provisions, and when I got the bill I see that he taxed me twenty-nine cents for his improvements. I met one o' my friends, and I says to him, Wall, I says, Sam is going to make us pay for his new house and lot. Sam's ham and flour have jumped again. As an assessor Sam is likely to make his mark. Wall, what do ye expect, says he. Lizzie is in high society, and he's got to keep up with her. Lizzie must have a home proper to one o' her station. Don't be hard on Sam. I ain't, I says. But Sam's house ought to be proper to his station instead o' hers. I had just sat down in my office when Bill Pettigrew came in, Sam's great rival in the grocery and aspiration business. He bought a new automobile and wanted me to draw a mortgage on his house and lot for $2,000. You'd better go slow, I says. It looks like bad business to mortgage your home for an automobile. It's for the benefit o' my customers, says he. Something pretty for em to look at, I asked. It will quicken deliveries, says he. You can't afford it, I says. Yes, I can, says he. I've put up prices twenty per cent, and it ain't a going to bother me to pay for it. Oh, then your customers are going to pay for it, I says, and you're only a guarantor. I wouldn't put it that way, says he. It costs more to live these days. Everything is going up. Including taxes, I says to Bill, and went to work and drew his mortgage for him, and he got his automobile. I'd intended to take my trade to his store, but when I saw that he planned to tax the community for his luxuries I changed my mind and went over to F. Hills. He kept the only other decent grocery store in the village. His prices were just about on a level with the others. How do you explain it that prices have gone up so? I asked. Why, they say it's due to an overproduction o' gold, says he. Looks to me like an overproduction of argument, I says. The old earth keeps shelling out more gold every year, and the more she takes out o' her pockets the more I have to take out o' mine. Wall, o' course I had to keep in line, so I put up the prices o' my work a little to be in fashion. Everybody kicked good and plenty, and nobody worse than Sam and Bill and Ephraim, but I told them how I'd read that there was so much gold in the world it kind o' set me hankerin'. You know I had ten acres o' worn-out land in the edge o' the village. And while others bought automobiles and such luxuries, I invested in fertilizers and hired a young man out of an agricultural school and went to farming. Within a year, I was raising all the meat and milk and vegetables that I needed, and selling as much Aegean to my neighbors. Well, Point View under Lizzie was like Rome under Theodora. The immoral sold the people throve and grew. As prices went up, decency went down, and wisdom rose in value like meat and flour. Seemed so everybody that had a dollar in the bank and some that didn't bought automobiles. They kept me busy drawing contracts and deeds and mortgages and searching titles, and oh course I prospered. More than half the population converted property into cash and cash into folly, automobiles, piano players, foreign tours, vocal music, modern languages, and the aspirations of other people. They were puffing it on each other. Every man had a deep scheme for making the other fellow pay for his fun. Reminds me o' that verse from Zechariah, 
I will show them no mercy, saith the Lord, but I will deliver every man into the hand of his neighbor. Now the barren business has generally been lucrative, but here in point view there was too much competition. We were all barons. Everybody was tashing everybody else for his luxuries, and nobody could save a cent, nobody but me and F. Hill. He didn't buy any automobiles or build a new house or send his girl to the seminary. He kept both feet on the ground, but he put up his prices along with the rest. By and by F. had a mortgage on about half the houses in the village. That showed what was the matter with the other men. The merchants all got liver complaint. There were twenty men that I used to see walking home to their dinner every day or down to the post office every evening. But they didn't walk any more. They scud along in their automobiles at twenty miles an hour, with the whole family around them. They looked as if they thought that now at last they were keeping up with Lizzie. Their homes were empty most of the time. The reading lamp was never lighted. There was no season no social converse. Every merchant but F. Hill grew fat and round, and complained of indigestion and sick headache. Sam looked like a moored balloon. Seemed so their morals grew fat and flabby and shift less than in need of exercise. Their morals traveled too, but they traveled from mouth to mouth, as you might say, and very fast. More than half of them give up church and went off on the country roads every Sunday. All along the pike from Pointview to Jerusalem corners ye could see where they laid humbly on their backs in the dust, praying to a new God and trying to soften his heart with oil or open the gates, O mercy, with a monkey wrench. Bill came into my shop one day and looked as if he hadn't a friend in the world. He wanted to borrow some money. Money, I says, what makes ye think I've got money? Because ye ain't got any automobile, he says, Logan. No, I says, you bought one, and that was all I could afford. It never touched him. He went on as dry as a duck in a shower. You're one o' the few sensible men in this village. You live within your means, and you ought to have money if ye ain't. I've got a little, but I don't see why you should have it, I says. You want me to do all the savon for both of us. It costs so much to live I can't save a cent, he says. You know I've got a boy in college, and it costs fearful. I told my boy the other day how I worked my way through school and lived on a dollar a week in a little room and did my own washing. He says to me, Well, Governor, you forget that I have a social position to maintain. He's right, I says. You can't expect him to belong to the varsity crew in the dicky and the hasty putton club and dress and behave like the son of an ordinary grocer in Pointview, Connecticut. Ye can't live on nuts and raisins and be decent in such a position. Looks to me as if it would require the combined incomes o' the grocer and his lawyer to maintain it. His position is likely to be hard on your disposition. He's trying to keep up with Lizzie, that's what's the matter. For a moment Bill looked like a lost dog. I told him how Grand and Thomas stood on a hilltop one day and saw their men being mowed down like grass, and by and by Thomas says to Grant, Wall, General, we'll have to move back a little. It's too hot for the boys here. I'm afraid your boy's position is kind of uncomfortable, I says. I'll win out, he says. My boy will marry and settle down in a year or so, then he'll begin to help me. But you may be killed off before then, I says. If my friends LL stand by me I'll pull through, says he. But your friends have their own families to stand by, I says. Look here, Mr. Potter, says he. You've no such expense as I have. You're able to help me, and you ought to. I've got a note coming due tomorrow and no money to pay it with. Renew it and then retrench, I says. 
Cut down your expenses and your prices. Can't, says he. It costs too much to live. What ll I do? You ought to die, I says, very mad. I can't, says he. Why not? It costs so much to die, he says. Why, it takes a thousand dollars to give a man a decent funeral these days. Wall, I says, a man that can't afford either to live or die excites my sympathy and my caution. You've taxed the community for your luxuries, and now you want to tax me for your notes. It's unjust discrimination. It gives me a kind of a lonesome feeling. You tell your boy Dan to come and see me. He needs advice more than you need money, and I've got a full line of it. Bill went away richer by a check for a few hundred dollars. Oh, I always know when I'm losing money. I'm not like other citizens old point view. Dan came to see me the next Saturday night. He was a big, blue-eyed, handsome, good-natured boy and dressed like the son of a millionaire. I brought him here to the office, and he sat down beside me. Dan, I says, what are your plans for the future? I mean to be a lawyer, says he. Quit it, I says. Why, says he. There are too many lawyers. We don't need any more. They're devouring our substance. What do you suggest? Be a real man. We're on the verge of a social revolution. Boys have been leaving the farms and going into the cities to be grand folks. The result is we have too many grand folks and too few real folks. The tide has turned. Get aboard. I don't understand you. America needs wheat and corn and potatoes more than it needs arguments and theories. Would you have me be a farmer? He asked, in surprise. A farmer, I says. It's a new business, an exact science these days. Think of the high prices and the cheap land with its productiveness more than doubled by modern methods. The country is longing for big, brainy men to work its idle land. Soon we shall not produce enough for our own needs. But I'm too well educated to be a farmer, says he. Pardon me, I says. The land LL soak up all the education you've got and yell for more. Its great need is education. We've been sending the smart boys to the city and keeping the fools on the farm. We've put everything on the farm but brains. That's what's the matter with the farm. But farming isn't dignified, says Dan. Pardon me, Aegean, says I. It's more dignified to search for the secrets, O God, in the soil than to grope for the secrets, O Satan, in a lawsuit. Any fool can learn Blackstone in Kenton Greenleaf, but the book o' law that's writ in the soil is only for keen eyes. I want a business that fits a gentleman, says Dan. And the future farmer can be as much of a gentleman as God allow let him, says I. He'll have as many servants as his talents can employ. His income will exceed the earnings of forty lawyers taken as they average. His position will be like that o' the rich planter before the war. Well, how shall I go about it, he says, half convinced. First stop trying to keep up with Lizzie, says I. The way to beat Lizzie is to go toward the other end o' the road. Ye see, you've dragged your father into the race, and he's about winded. Turn around and let Lizzie try to keep up with you. Second, change your base. Go to a school of agriculture and learn the business just as you'd go to a school o' law or medicine. Begin modest. Live within your means. If you do right I'll buy you all the land you want and start ye going dot. When he left I knew that I'd won my case. In a week or so he sent me a letter saying that he'd decided to take my advice. He came to see me often after that. The first we knew he was going with Marie Benson. Marie had a reputation for good sense, 
but right away she began to take after Lizzie and struck a tolerably good pace. Went to New York to study music and perfect herself in French. I declare it seemed as if about every girl in the village was trying to be a kind of a princess with a full jeweled brain. Girls who didn't know an adjective from an adverb and would have been stuck by a simple sum in algebra could converse in French and sing in Italian. Not one in ten was willing, if she knew how, to sweep a floor or cook a square meal. Their souls were above it. Their feet were in point view and their heads in dreamland. They talked o' oh, the doings o' oh, the four hundred and the successes o' oh, Lizzie. They trilled and warbled. They pounded the family piano. They golfed and motored and whisted. They engaged in the titivation of toy dogs and the cultivation o' oh, general debility. They ate caramels and chocolates enough to fill up a well. They complained. They dreamed o' oh, sunbursts and tiaras while their papas worried about notes and bills. They lay on downy beds of ease with the last bestseller and followed the fortunes of the bold youth until he found his treasure at last in the unhidden chest. Of the heroine, they created what we are pleased to call the servant problem, which is really the drone problem, caused by the added number who toil not, but have to be toiled for. They grew in fat and folly. Some were both oxide and peroxide. Homeliness was to them the only misfortune, fat the only burden, and pimples the great enemy of woman. Now the organs of the human body are just as shiftless as the one that owns them. The systems owe oh, these fair ladies couldn't do their own work. The physician and the surgeon were added to the list of oh, their servants, and became as necessary as the cook and the chambermaid. But they were keeping up with Lizzie. Poor things. They weren't so much to blame. They thought their fathers were rich, and their fathers enjoyed and clung to that reputation. They hid their poverty and flaunted the flag of opulence. It costs money, big money and more, to produce a generation of invalids. The father's old point view had paid for it with sweat and toil and broken health and borrowed money and the usual tax added to the price so their goods or their labor. Then one night the cashier of the First National Bank blew out his brains. We found that he had stolen $18,000 in the effort to keep up. That was a lesson to the Lizzie Chasers. Why, sir, we found that each of his older girls had diamond rings and could sing in three languages, and a boy was in college. Poor man! He didn't steal for his own pleasure. Everything went at auction, house, grounds, rings, automobile. Another man was caught selling underweight with fixed scales and went to prison. Henry Brown failed, and we found that he had borrowed $500 from John Bass, and at the same time John Bass had borrowed 600 from Tom Rogers and Rogers had borrowed 750 from Sam Henshaw, and Henshaw had borrowed the same amount from Percival Smith, and Smith had got it from me. The chain broke, the note structure fell like a household cards, and I was the only loser, think o' that. There were five capitalists and only one man with real money. Two in which Lizzie returns to her home, having met a queen and acquired an accent and a fiancé. Sam Henshaw's girl had graduated and gone abroad with her mother. One Sunday about a year later, Sam flew up to the door o' my house in his automobile. He lit on the sidewalk and struggled up the steps with 247 pounds o' meat on him. He walked like a man carrying a barrel o' pork. He acted as if he was glad to see me in the big armchair on the piaz. What's the news? I asked. Lizzie and her mother got back this morning, he gasped. They've been six months in Europe. Lizzie is in love with it. She's hobnobbed with kings and queens. She talks art beautiful. I wish you'd come over and hear her hold a conversation.
It's wonderful. She's going to be a great addition to this community. She's got me faded and on the run. I ran down to the store for a few minutes this morning, and when I got back she says to me, Father, you always smell oh ham and mustard. Have you been in that disgusting store? Go and take a bath at once. That's what she called it, a bath. Talks just like the English people. She's been among em so long. Get into my car and I'll take ye over and fetch ye back. Sam regarded his humiliation with pride and joy. At last Lizzie had convinced him that her education had paid. My curiosity was excited. I got in and we flew over to his house. Sam yelled up the stairway kind o' oh, joyful as we come in, and his wife answered at the top o' the stairs and says, Mr. Henshaw, I wish you wouldn't shout in this house like a boy calling the cows. I guess she didn't know I was there. Sam ran upstairs and back, and then we turned into that splendid parlor o' oh, his and sat down. Pretty soon Liz and her mother swung in and smiled very pleasant and shook hands and asked how was my family, etc., and went right on talking. I saw they didn't ask for the purpose of getting information. Liz was dressed to kill and putty as a picture, cheeks red as a rooster's comb and waist like a hornet's. The cover was off her showcase, and there was a diamond sunburst in the middle of it, and the jewels were surrounded by charms to which I am not wholly insensible even now. I wanted ye to tell Mr. Potter about you travels, says Sam. Illustration. I wanted ye to tell Mr. Potter about you travels, says Sam. Lizzie smiled and looked out o' the window a minute and fetched a sigh and struck out, looking like Deacon Bristow the day he give ten dollars to the church. She told about the cities and the folks and the weather in that queer, English way she had o' talking. Tell how ye hobnobbed with the Queen o' Italy, Sam says. Oh, father! Hobnob, says she, anybody would think that she and I had manicured each other's hands. She only spoke a few words of Italian and looked very gracious and beautiful and complimented my color. Then she lay back in her chair, kind o' weary, and Sam asked me how was business, just to fill in the gap, I guess. Liz woke up and showed how far she'd got ahead in the race. Business, says she, with animation, that's why I haven't any patience with American men. They never sit down for ten minutes without talking business. Their souls are steeped in commercialism. Don't you see how absurd it is, father? There are plenty of lovely things to talk about. Sam looked guilty, and I felt sorry for him. It had cost heavy to educate his girl up to a peant where she could give him so much advice and information. The result was natural. She was irritated by the large cubic capacity, the length, breadth, and thickness of his ignorance and unrefinement. He was dazed by the length, breadth, and thickness of her learning and her charm. He didn't say a word. He bowed his head before this pretty, perfumed casket of erudition. You like Europe, I says. I love it, says she. It's the only place to live. There one finds so much of the beautiful in art and music and so many cultivated people. Lizzie was a handsome girl and had more sense than any of the others that tried to keep up with her. After all, she was Sam's fault, and Sam was a sin conceived and committed by his wife, as you might say. She had made him what he was. Have you seen Dan Pettigrew lately? Lizzie asked. Yes, I says. Dan is going to be a farmer. A farmer, says she, and covered her face with her handkerchief and shook with merriment. Yes, I says. Dan has come down out o' the air. He's abandoned folly. He wants to do something to help along.
Yes, of course, says Lizzie in a lofty manner. Dan is really an excellent boy, isn't he? Yes, and he's living within his means. That's the first milestone in the road to success, I says. I'm going to buy him a thousand acres o' land, and one o' these days he'll own it and as much more. You wait. He'll have a hundred men in his employ, and flocks and herds in a market of his own in New York. He'll control prices in this county, and they're going down. He'll be a force in the state. They were all sitting up. The faces of the Lady Henshaw and her daughter turned red. I'm very glad to hear it, I'm sure, said her ladyship. I wasn't so sure o' that as she was, and there, for me, was the milk in the coconut. I was joyful. Why, it's perfectly lovely, says Lizzie, as she fetched her pretty hands together in her lap. Yes, you want to cultivate Dan, I says. He's a man to be reckoned with. Oh, indeed, says her ladyship. Yes, indeed, I says, and the girls are all after him. I just guessed that. I knew it wasn't scrupulous, but living here in this atmosphere does affect the morals even of a lawyer. Lizzie grew red in the face. He could marry one o' the four hundred if he wanted to, I says. The other evening he was seen in the big red touring car o' the Van Alsteins. What do you think o' that? Now that was true, but the chauffeur had been a college friend o' Dan's, and I didn't mention that. Lizzie had a dreamy smile in her face. Why, it's wonderful, says she. I didn't know he'd improved so. I hear that his mother is doing her own work, says the Lady Henshaw, with a forced smile. Yes, think of it, I says. The woman is earning her daily bread, actually helping her husband. Did you ever hear o' such a thing? I'll have to scratch him off my list. It's too uncommon. It ain't respectable. Her ladyship began to suspect me and retreated with her chin in the air. She'd had enough. I thought that would do and drew out o' the game. Lizzie looked confident. She seemed to have something up her sleeve besides that lovely arm o' hers. I went home, and two days later Sam looked me up again. Then the secret came out o' the bag. He'd heard that I had some money in the savings banks over at Bridgeport paying me only three and a half percent and he wanted to borrow it and pay me six percent his generosity surprised me. It was not like Sam. What's the matter with you? I asked. Is it possible that your profits have all gone into gasoline and rubber and silk and education and hardwood finish and human fat? Well, it costs so much to live, he says, and the wholesalers have kept lifting the prices on me. Now there's the meat trust. Their prices are up thirty-five percent. Of course, I says, the directors have to have their luxuries. You taxed us for your new house and your automobile and your daughter's education, and they're tashing you for their steam yachts and private cars and racing stables. You can't expect to do all the tashing. The wholesalers learned about the profits that you and others like you was making, and they concluded that they needed a part of them. Of course they had to have their luxuries, and they're tashing you. They couldn't afford to have them if they didn't. Don't complain. I'll come out all right, he says. I'm going to raise my whole schedule 15%. The people won't stand it. They can't, says I. You'll be drowning the miller. They'll leave you. It won't do him any good, says he. Bill and F will make their prices agree with mine. Folks will go back to the land, as I have, says I. They don't know enough, says Sam. Farming is a lost art here in the East. You take my word for it. They'll pay our prices. They'll have to. And the rich folks... They don't worry about prices. I pay a commission to every steward and butler in this neighborhood. 
I won't help you, says I. It's wicked. You ought to have saved your money. In a year from now I'll have money to burn, he says. For one thing, my daughter's education is finished, and that has cost heavy. How much would it cost to unlearn it? I asked. That's going to cost more than it did to get it, I'm afraid. In my opinion the first thing to do with her is to uneducate her. That was like a red-hot iron to Sam. It kindo head him up. Why, sir, you don't appreciate her, says he. That girl is far above us all here in point view. She's a queen. Well, Sam, I says, if there's anything you don't need just now, it's a queen. If I were you, I wouldn't graft that kind of fruit on the grocery tree. Hams and coronets don't flourish on the same bush. They have a different kind of a bouquet. They don't harmonize. Then, Sam, what do you want of a girl that's far above ye? Is it any comfort to you to be despised in your own home? Mr. Potter, I haven't educated her for my own home or for this community, but for higher things, says Sam. You hairy old ass. The first you know, I says, they'll have your skin off and layin' on the front piaz for a doormat. Sam started for the open air. I hated to be hostage with him, but he needed some education himself, and it took a beetle and wedge to open his mind for it. He lifted his chin so high that the fat swelled out on the back of his neck and unbuttoned his collar. Then he turned and said, My daughter is too good for this town, and I don't intend that she shall stay here. She has been asked to marry a man of fortune in the old country. So I surmised, and I suppose you find that the price o' husbands has gone up, I says. Sam didn't answer me. They want you to settle some money on the girl, don't they? I asked. My wife says it's the custom in the old country, says Sam. Suppose he ain't worth the price? They say he's a splendid fellow, says Sam. You let me investigate him, I says, and if he's really worth the price I'll help ye to pay it. Sam said that was fair, and thanked me for the offer, and gave me the young man's address. He was a Russian by the name of Alexander Rolinoff, and Sam insisted that he belonged to a very old family of large means and noble blood and said that the young man would be in point view that summer. I wrote to the mayor of the city in which he was said to live, but got no answer. Alexander came. He was a costly and beautiful young man, about thirty years old, with red cheeks and curly hair and polished fingernails, and wrote poetry. Sometimes ye meet a man that excites your worst suspicions. Your right hand no sooner lets go of his than it slides down into your pocket to see if anything has happened. Or maybe you take the arm o' your wife or your daughter and walk away. Alec leaned a little in both directions. But, sir, Sam didn't care to know my opinion of him. Never said another word to me on the subject, but came again to ask about the money. Look here, Sam, I says. You tell Lizzie that I want to have a talk with her at four o'clock in this office? If she really wants to buy this man, I'll see what can be done about it. All right, you talk with her, says he, and went out. In a few minutes Dan showed up. Have you seen Lizzie, says I? Not to speak to her, says Dan. Looks fine, doesn't she? Beautiful, I says. How is Marie Benson? Oh, the second time I went to see her she was trying to keep up with Lizzie, says he. She's changed her gait. Was going to New York after a lot o' new frills. I suppose she thought that I wanted a grand lady. That's the trouble with all the girls here. A man might as well marry the real thing as an imitation. I wish Lizzie would get down off her high horse. She's going to swap him for one with still longer legs, I says. Lizzie is engaged to a gentleman o' fortune in the old country. 
Dan's face began to stretch out long as if it was made of any rubber. It's too bad, says he. Lizzie is a good-hearted girl if she is spoilt. Fine girl, I says. And Dan, I was in hopes that she would discover her own folly before it was too late. But she saw that others had begun to push her in the race and that she had to let out another link or fall behind. Well, I wish her happiness, says Dan, with a sigh. Go and tell her so, I says. Show her that you have some care as to whether she lives or dies. I could see that his feelings had been honed till they were sharp as a razor. I've seen that fellow, he says, and he'll never marry Lizzie if I can prevent it. I hate the looks of him. I shall improve the first opportunity I have to insult him. That might be impossible, I suggested. But I'll make the effort, says Dan. As an insulter I wouldn't wonder if Dan had large capacity when properly stirred up. Better let him alone. I have lines out that will bring information. Be patient. Dan rose and said he would see me soon, and left with a rather stern look in his face. Three in which Lizzie descends from a great height. Lizzie was on hand at the hour appointed. We sat down here all by ourselves. Lizzie, I says, why in the world did you go to Europe for a husband? It's a slight to point you, a discouragement of home industry. There was nobody here that seemed to want me, she says, blushing very sweet. She had dropped her princess manner and seemed to be ready for straight talk. If that's so, Lizzie, it's your fault, I says. I don't understand you, says she. Why, my dear child, it's this way, I says. Your mother and father have meant well, but they've been foolish. They've educated you for a millionaires, and all that's lacking is the millions. You overawed the boys here in point view. They thought that you felt above them, whether you did or not, and the boys on Fifth Avenue were glad to play with you, but they didn't care to marry you. I say it kindly, Lizzie, and I'm a friend o' your father's, and you can afford to let me say what I mean. Those young fellows wanted the millions as well as the millionaires. One of our boys fell in love with ye and tried to keep up, but your pace was too hot for him. His father got in trouble, and the boy had to drop out. Every well-born girl in the village entered the race with ye. An era of extravagance set in that threatened the solvency, the honor, oh this sober old community. Their fathers had to borrow money to keep it going. They worked overtime, they importuned their creditors, they wallowed in low finance while their daughters reveled in the higher walks old life and sang in different languages. Even your father, I tell you in confidence, for I suppose he wouldn't have the courage to do it, is in financial difficulties. Now, Lizzie, I want to be kind to you, for I believe you're a good girl at heart, but you ought to know that all this is what your accomplishments have accomplished. She rose and walked across the room, with trembling lips. She had seized her parachute and jumped from her balloon, and was slowly approaching the earth. I kept her coming, these clothes and jewels that you wear, Lizzie, these silks and laces, these sunbursts and solitaires, don't seem to harmonize with your father's desire to borrow money. Pardon me, but I can't make them look honest. They are not paid for, or if they are they are paid for with other men's money. They seem to accuse you. They'd accuse me if I didn't speak out plain to ye. All of a sudden Lizzie dropped into a chair and began to cry. She had lit safely on the ground. Illustration. Lizzie dropped into a chair and began to cry. It made me feel like a murderer, but it had to be. Poor girl. I wanted to pick her up like a baby and kiss her. It wasn't that I loved Lizzie less but Rome more. She wasn't to blame. 
Every spoiled woman stands for a fool man. Most of them need, not a master, but a frank counselor. I locked the door. She grew calm and leaned on my table, her face covered with her hands. My clock shouted the seconds in the silence. Not a word was said for two or three minutes. I have been brutal, I says by and by. Forgive me. Mr. Potter, she says, you've done me a great kindness. I'll never forget it. What shall I do? Well, for one thing, says I, go back to your old simplicity and live within your means. I'll do it, she says, but I, I suppose my father was rich. Oh, I wish we could have had this talk before. Did you know that Dan Pettigrew was in love with you? I put it straight from the shoulder. He wouldn't dare tell ye, but you ought to know it. You are regarded as a kind of a queen here, and it's customary for queens to be approached by ambassadors. Her face lighted up. In love with me, she whispered. Why, Mr. Potter, I never dreamed of such a thing. Are you sure? How do you know? I thought he felt above me. And he thought you felt above him, I says. How absurd. How unfortunate, she whispered. I couldn't marry him now if he asked me. This thing has gone too far. I wouldn't treat any man that way. You are engaged to Alexander, are you? I says. Well, there's a sort of understanding, and I think we are to be married if, if. She paused, and tears came to her eyes again. You are thinking of the money, says I. I am thinking of the money, says she. It has been promised to him. He will expect it. Do you think he is an honest man? Will he treat you well? I suppose so. Then let me talk with him. Perhaps he would take you without anything to boot. Please don't propose that, says she. I think he's getting the worst of it now. Mr. Potter, would you lend me the money? I ask it because I don't want the family to be disgraced or Mr. Rolanoff to be badly treated. He is to invest the money in my name in a very promising venture. He says he can double it within three months. It would have been easy for me to laugh, but I didn't. Lizzie's attitude in the whole matter pleased me. I saw that her heart was sound. I promised to have a talk with her father and see her again. I looked into his affairs carefully and put him on a new financial basis with a loan of $15,000. One day he came around to my office with Alexander and wanted me to draw up a contract between him and the young man. It was a rather crude proposition, and I laughed, and Alex sat with a bored smile on his face. Oh, if he's good enough for your daughter, I said, his word ought to be good enough for you. That's all right, says Sam, but business is business. I want it down in black and white that the income from this money is to be paid to my daughter, and that neither of them shall make any further demand on me. Well, I drew that full contract. And, after it was signed, Sam delivered ten $1,000 bills to the young man, who was to become his son-in-law the following month with the assistance of a caterer and a florist and a string band, all from New Haven. Within half an hour Dan Pettigrew came roaring up in front of my office in the big red automobile of his father's. In a minute he came in to see me. He out with his business soon as he lit in a chair. I've learned that this man Rolanoff is a scoundrel, says he. A scoundrel, says I. Of purest racerine, says he. I put a few questions, but he nothing in the way of proof to Otter. It was only the statement of a newspaper. Is that all you know against him? I asked. He won't fight, says Dan. I've tried him. I begged him to fight. Well, I've got better evidence than you have, I says. 
It came a few minutes before you did. I showed him a cablegram from a London barrister that said, Inquiry complete. The man is a pure adventurer, character nil. We must act immediately, says Dan. I have telephoned all over the village for Sam, I says. They say he's out in his car with Alec and Lizzie. I asked them to send him here as soon as he returns. They're down on the post road I met em on my way here, says Dan. We can overtake that car easy. Well, the wedding day was approaching and Alec had the money, and the thought occurred to me that he might give em the slip somewhere on the road and get away with it. I left word in the store that if Sam got back before I saw him he was to wait with Alec in my office until I returned, and off we started like a baseball on its way from the box to the catcher. An officer on his motorcycle overhauled us on the post road. He knew me. It's a case o' sickness, I says, and we're after Sam Henshaw. He's gone down the road and hasn't come back yet, says the officer. I passed him a ten-dollar bill. Keep within sight of us, I says. We may need you any minute. He nodded and smiled, and away we went. I'm wondering how we're going to get the money, I says, having told Dan about it. I'll take it away from him, says Dan. That wouldn't do, says I. Why not? Why not, says I. You wouldn't want to be arrested for highway robbery. Then, too, we must think o' Lizzie. Poor girl. It's a-going to be hard on her, anyhow. I'll try a bluff. It's probable that he's worked this game before. If so, we can rob him without violence and let him go. Dan grew joyful as we sped along. Lizzie is mine, he says. She wouldn't marry him now. He told me how fond they had been of each other until they got accomplishments and began to put up the price of themselves. He said that in their own estimation they had risen value like beef and ham, and he confessed how foolish he had been. We were excited and moving fast. Something will happen soon, he says. And it did, within ten minutes from date. We could see a blue car half a mile ahead. I'll go by that old freight car o' the Henshaws, says Dan. They'll take after me for Sam is vain of his car. We can halt them in that narrow cut on the hill beyond the Byron River. We had rounded the turn at Chesterville, when we saw the Henshaw car just ahead of us, with Alec at the wheel and Lizzie beside him and Sam on the back seat. I saw the peril in the situation. The long rivalry between the houses of Henshaw and Pettigrew, reinforced by that of the young men, was nearing its climax. See me go by that old soapbox old the Henshaws, says Dan as he pulled up to pass him. Then Dan and Alec began a duel with automobiles. Each had a forty-horsepower engine in his hands, with which he was resolved to humble the other. Dan knew that he was going to bring down the price o' Alec's and Henshaw's. First we got ahead, then they scraped by us, crumpling our fender on the nigh side. Lizzie and I lost our hats in the scrimmage. We gathered speed and ripped off a section o' their bulwarks, and roared along neck and neck with them. The broken fenders rattled like drums in a battle. A hen flew up and hit me in the face, and came nigh unhorsing me. I hung on. It seemed as if fate was trying to halt us, but our horsepower was too high. A dog went under us. It began to rain a little. We were a length ahead at the turn by the Byron River. We swung for the bridge and skidded and struck a telephone pole, and I went right on over the stone fence in the clay bank and lit on my head in the water. Dan Pettigrew lit beside me. Then came Lizzie and Sam. They fairly reined into the river. I looked up to see if Alec was coming, but he wasn't. Sam, being so heavy, 
had stopped quicker and hit in shallow water near the shore. But, as luck would have it, the bottom was soft and he had come down feet foremost, and a broken leg and some bad bruises were all he could boast of. Lizzie was in hysterics, but seemed to be unhurt. Dan and I got him out on the shore, and left him crying side by side, and scrambled up the bank to find Alec. He had aimed too low and hit the wall, and was stunned, and apparently, for the time, dead as a heron on the farther side of it. I removed the ten $1,000 bills from his person to prevent complications and tenderly laid him down. Then he came to very sudden. Stop, he murmured, you're robbing me. Well, you begun it, I says, don't judge me hastily. I'm a philanthropist. I'm going to leave you your liberty in a hundred dollars. You take it and get. If you ever return to Connecticut, I'll arrest you at sight. I gave him the money and called the officer, who had just come up. A traveler in a large touring car had halted near us. Put him into that car and take him to Chesterville, I said. He limped to the car and left without a word. I returned to my friends and gently broke the news. Sam blubbered education done it, says he, as he mournfully shook his head. Yes, I says, education is responsible for a damned lot of ignorance. And some foolishness, says Sam, as he scraped the mud out of his hair. Think of our going like that. We ought to have known better. We knew better, I says, but we had to keep up with Lizzie. Sam turned toward Lizzie and moaned in a broken voice, I wish it had killed me. Why so? I asked. It costs so much to live, Sam sobbed, in a half-hysterical way. I've got an expensive family on my hands. You needn't be afraid o' oh, having Lizzie on your hands, says Dan, who held the girl in his arms. What do you mean? Carrot Sam inquired. She's on my hands and she's going to stay there, says the young man. I'm in love with Lizzie myself. I've always been in love with Lizzie. Your confession is ill-timed, says Lizzie, as she pulled away and tried to smooth her hair. She began to cry again, and added, between sobs, My heart is about broken, and I must go home and get help for my poor father. I'll attend to that, says Dan, but I warn you that I'm going to offer a pettigrew for a henshaw even. If I had a million dollars I'd give it all to boot. Sam turned toward me, his face red as a beet. The money, he shouted, get it, quick. Here it is, I said, as I put the roll of bills in his hand. Did you take it off him? I took it off him. Poor Alec, he says, mournfully, as he counted the money. It's kind o' hard on him. Soon we halted a passin' automobile and got Sam up the bank and over the wall. It was like moving a piano with somebody playing on it, but we managed to seat him on the front floor o' the car, which took us all home. So the affair ended without disgrace to anyone, if not without violence and no one knows of the cablegram save the few persons directly concerned. But the price of Alex took a big slump in point view. No handsome foreign gent could marry anyone in this village, unless it was a chambermaid in a hotel. That was the end of the first heat of the race with Lizzie in point view. Alec had folded up his bluff and silently sneaked away. I heard no more of him save from a lady with blonde, curly hair and a face done in watercolors, who called at my office one day to ask about him and who proved to my satisfaction that she was his wife, and who remarked with real, patrician accent when I told her the truth about him, Ah, Jiwan, you're kidding me. I began to explore the mind of Lizzie, and she acted as my guide in the matter. For her troubles the girl was about equally indebted to her parents and the Smythe school.
Now the Smythe School had been founded by the Reverend Hopkins Smythe, an Englishman who for years had been pastor of the First Congregational Church, a soothing man and a favorite of the rich New Yorkers. People who hadn't slept for weeks found repose in the First Congregational Church and Sanitarium of Pointview. They slept and snored while the Reverend Hopkins wept and roared. His rhetoric was better than bromide or sulfonal. In grateful recollection of their slumbers, they set him up in business. Now I'm a-going to talk as mean as I feel. Sometimes I get tired o' being a gentleman and knock off for a season o' rest and refreshment. Here goes. The school has some good girls in it, but most of them are indolent candy-eaters. Their life is one long, sweet dream broken by nightmares of indigestion. Their study is mainly a bluff, their books a merry jest, their teachers a butt of ridicule. They're the various little pagans. Their religion is, in fact, a kind of smithology. Its high priest is the Reverend Hopkins. Its Jupiter is self. Its lesser gods are princes, dukes, earls, counts, and barons. Its angels are actors and tenors. Its baptism is flattery. Poverty and work are its twin hells. Matrimony is its heaven, and a slippery place it is. They revel in the best sellers and the worst smellers. They gossip of intrigue and scandal. They get their lessons if they have time. They cheat in their examinations. If the teacher objects she is promptly and generally insulted. She has to submit or go, for the girls stand together. It's a sort of schoolgirls' union. They'd quit in a body if their fun were seriously interrupted, and Mr. Smythe couldn't afford that, you know. He wouldn't admit it, but they've got him buffaloed. Lizzie no sooner got through than she set out with her mother to find the prince. She struck Alec in Italy. Socrates leaned back and laughed. Now, if you please, I'll climb back on my pedestal, he said. Thank God. Lizzie began to rise above her education. She went to work in her father's store, and the whole gang of Lizzie chasers had to change their gait again. She organized our prosperous young ladies' club, a model of its kind the purpose of which is the promotion of simple living and a taste for useful work. They have fairs in the churches, and I distribute a hundred dollars in cash prizes, five dollars each for the best exhibits o' pumpkin pie, chicken pie, bread, rolls, coffee, roast turkey, plain and fancy sewing, and so on. One by one the girls are talking hold with us and letting go o' the grand life. They've begun to take hold o' the broom and the dishcloth, and the boys seem to be talking hold o' them with more vigor and determination. The boys are concluding that it's cheaper to buy a piano player than to marry one, that can prima donnas are better than the homegrown article, that women are more to be desired than playthings. For in which the ham war has its beginning. One day in the old time a couple of industrious Yankees were hard at work in a field. Socrates continued. Suddenly one said to the other, I wish I was worth ten thousand dollars. And the other asked, What would ye do with it? The wisher rested on his shovel and gave his friend a look of utter contempt. What would I do with it? He said, Why, you cussed fool, I'd set down, and without blamin' myself. By and by the Yankee got to set him down without blamin' himself, and also without the ten thousand. Here in Pointview we're learnin' how to stand up again, and Lizzie is responsible. You shall hear how it happened. First I must tell you that Dan had been making little progress in the wooin' o' Lizzie. Now she was inclined to go slow. Lizzie was fond o' Dan. She put on her best clothes when he came to see her of a Sunday. She sang to him, 
She walked him about the place with her arm in his, but she tenderly refused to agree to marry him. When he grew sentimental she took him out among the cucumbers in the garden. She permitted no sudden rise in his temperature. I will not marry, she said, until I have done what I can to repay my father for all that he has tried to do for me. I must be uneducated and re-educated. It may take a long time. Meanwhile you may meet someone you like better. I'm not going to pledge you to wait for me. Of course I shall be awfully proud and pleased if you do wait. But Dan, I want you to be free. Let's both be free until we're ready. It was bully. Dan pleaded with the eloquence of an old-fashioned lawyer. Lizzie stood firm behind this high fence, and she was right. With Dan and dead and babies coming, what could she have done for her father? Suddenly it seemed as if all the young men had begun to take an interest in Lizzie, and, to tell the truth, she was about the neatest, sweetest little myrmidon of commerce that ever wore a white apron. The light of true womanhood had begun to shine in her face. She kept the store in apple pie order and everybody was well treated. The business grew. Sam bought a small farm outside the village with crops in, and moved there for the summer. Soon he began to let down his prices. The combine was broken. It was the thing we had been waiting for. People flocked to his store. The others came down, but too late. Sam held his gain, and Lizzie was the power behind the fat. Dan finished his course in agriculture and I bought him a farm. And he went to work there, but he spent half his time in the store of his father trying to keep up with Lizzie. Suddenly Dan started a ham war. He cut the price of hams five cents a pound. Ham was one of our great staples, and excitement ran high. Lizzie cut below him two cents a pound. Dan cut the price again. Lizzie made no effort to meet this competition. The price had gone below the wholesale rate by quite a margin. People thronged to Dan's emporium. Women stood on the battlefield, their necks blanched with powder, their cheeks barren the red badge o' courage, and every man you met had a ham in his hand. The Pettigrew wagon hurried hither and thither loaded with hams. Even the best friends of Sam and Lizzie were seen in Dan's store buying hams. They laid in a stock for all winter. Suddenly Dan quit and restored his price to the old figure. Lizzie continued to sell at the same price, and was just as cheerful as ever. She had won the fight, and you wouldn't think that anything unusual had happened, but wait and see. Every day boys and girls were dropping out of the clouds and going to work trying to keep up with Lizzie. The hammock swung limp in the breeze. The candy stores were almost deserted, and those that sat by the fountains were few. We were learning how to stand up. One day Dan came into my office all out of gear. He looked sore and discouraged. I didn't wonder. What's the matter now? I says. I don't believe Lizzie cares for me. How's that? I says. Last Sunday she was out riding with Tom Bryson, and every Sunday afternoon I find half a dozen young fellows up there. Well, you know, Lizzie is attractive, and she ain't our yet. Not just yet, I says. If young men come to see her she's got to be polite to him. You wouldn't expect her to take a broom and shoe him off? But I don't have anything to do with other girls. And you're jealous as a hornet, I says. Lizzie wants you to meet other girls. When Lizzie marries it will be for life. She'll want to know that you love her and only her. You keep right on trying to catch up with Lizzie, and don't be worried. He stopped strapping the razor of his discontent, but left me with unhappy looks. 
That very week I saw him riding about with Marie Benson in his father's motor car. Soon a beautiful thing happened. I have told you of the melancholy end of the cashier of one of our local banks. Well, in time his wife followed him to the cemetery. She was a distant relative of Sam's wife, and a friend of Lizzie. We found easy employment for the older children, and Lizzie induced her parents to adopt two that were just out of their mother's arms, a girl of one and a boy of three years. I suggested to Lizzie that it seemed to me a serious undertaking, but she felt that she ought to be awfully good by way of atonement for the folly of her past life. It was near the end of the year, and I happened to know that when Christmas came a little sack containing five hundred dollars in gold was delivered at Sam Henshaw's door for Lizzie from a source unknown to her. That paid for the nurse, and eased the situation. V in which Lizzie exerts an influence on the affairs of the rich and great. A year after Socrates Potter had told of the descent of Lizzie, and the successful beginning of her new life, I called again at his office. How is Point View? I asked. Did he ever learn how it happened to be called Point View? He inquired. No. Well, it began with a little tavern with a taproom called the Point View House, a great many years ago. Travelers used to stop and look around for the point, and of course, they couldn't see it, for there's none here, at least, no point of land. They'd go in and order drinks and say, Landlord, where's the point? And the landlord would say, Well, boys, if you ain't in a hurry you'll probably see it pretty soon. All at once it would appear to em, and it was apt to be an amusing bit o' scenery. We've always been quick to see a point here, and anxious to show it to other people. He leaned back and laughed as one foot sought the top of his desk. Our balloons rise from every walk o' life and come down out o' ballast. He went on. Many of them touch ground in the great financial aviation park that surrounds Wall Street. In our stages of recovery the power of Lizzie has been widely felt. Up went his other foot. I saw that the historical mood was upon him. Talk about trying to cross the Atlantic in an airship. Why, that's conservative he continued. Right here in the eastern part o' Connecticut lives a man who set out for the vicinity of the moon with a large company, a joint stock company, in his lifeboat. First he made the journey with the hot airship of his mind, and came back with millions in the hold of his imagination. Then he thought he'd experiment with a corporation of his friends, his surplus friends. They got in on the ground floor, and got out in the sky. Most of them were thrown over for ballast. The wellman of this enterprise escaped with his life in a little wreckage. He was Mr. Thomas Robinson Barrow, and he came to consult me about his affairs. They were in bad shape. Sell your big house and your motor cars, I urged. That would have been easy, he answered, but Lizzie has spoilt the market for luxuries. You remember how she got high notions up at the Smythe School and began a life of extravagance, and how we all tried to keep up with her and how the Rococo architecture broke out like pimples on the face of Connecticut? I smiled and nodded. Well, it was you, I hear, that helped her back to earth and started her in the simpleton life. Since then she has been going just as fast, but in the opposite direction, and we're still trying to keep up with her. Now I found a man who was going to buy my property, but suddenly his wife decided that they would get along with a more modest outfit. She's trying to keep up with Lizzie. Folks are getting wise. Why don't you? Can't. Why not? Because I'm a born fool. We're fettered. We're prisoners of luxury. 
Only a night or two before I had seen his wife at a reception with a rope of pearls in her rigging and a searchlight o' diamonds on her forward deck and a tiara bungai at her masthead and the flags of opulence flying fore and aft. If I were you, I said I'd sell everything, even the jewels. My poor wife, he exclaimed, I haven't the heart to tell her all. She don't know how hard up we are. I wouldn't neglect her education if I were you, I said. There's a kindness, you know, that's most unkind. Some day I shall write an article on the use and abuse of tiaras. Poor things. It isn't fair to overwork the family tiara. I suggest that you get a good-sized trunk and lock it up with the other jewels for a vacation. If necessary, your house could be visited by a burglar. That is, if you wanted to save the feelings of your wife. He turned with a puzzled look at me. Is it possible that you haven't heard of that trick? I asked. A man of your talents. He shook his head. Why, these days, if a man wishes to divorce the family jewels and is afraid of his wife, the house is always entered by a burglar. My dear sir, the burglar is an ever-present help in time of trouble. It's a pity that we have no gentleman's home journal in which poor but Durvin husbands could find encouragement and inspiration. He looked at me and laughed. Suppose you engage a trusty and reliable burglar, he proposed. There's only one in the world, I said. Who is it? Thomas Robinson Barrow. Of course, I'm not saying that if I needed a burglar he's just the man I should choose, but for this job he's the only reliable burglar. Try him. He seemed to be highly amused. But it might be difficult to fool the police, he said, in a minute. Well, it isn't absolutely necessary, you know, I suggested. The chief of police is a friend of mine. Good. I'm engaged for this job, and will sell the jewels and turn the money over to you. I do not advise that, not just that, I said. We'll retire them from active life. A tiara in the safe is worth two in the Titian bush. We'll use them for collateral and go to do in business. When we've paid the debts in full we'll redeem the goods and return them to your overjoyed wife. We'll launch our tiara on the Marcel waves. Tom was delighted with this plan. Not the best, perhaps. But anyhow, it would save his wife from reproach, and I don't know what would have happened if she had continued to dazzle and enrage his creditors with the pearls and the tiara. It will not be so easy to sell the house, Tom went on. That's our worst millstone. It was built for large hospitality, and we have a good many friends, and they come every week and jump on to the millstone. If one has to have a millstone he should choose it with discretion, I said. It doesn't pay to get one that is too inviting. You'll have to swim around with yours for a while, and watch your chance to slip it on to some other fellow's neck. You don't want your son to be a millstoneer. Someday a man of millions may find it a comfortable fit, and relieve you. They're buying places all about here. Tom left and began work on our program. The burglary was well executed and advertised. It achieved a fair amount of publicity. Not too much, you know, but enough. The place was photographed by the reporters with the placard for sale shown plainly on the front lawn. The advertisement was worth almost as much as the diamonds. Tom said that his wife had lost weight since the sad event. Of course, I said, you can't take ten pounds of jewelry from a woman without reducing her weight. She must have had a pint o' diamonds. Pictures and glowing accounts of the villa were printed in all the papers, and soon a millionaire wrote that it was just the place he was looking for. I closed the deal with him. It was Bill Warburton, 
who used to go to school with me up there on the hills. He had long been dreaming of a home in Point View. They used to say that Bill was a fool, but he proved an alibi. Went west years ago and made a fortune, and thought it would be nice to come back and finish his life where it began, near the greatest American city. I drew the papers, and Bill and I got together often and talked of the old happy days, now glimmering in the far past, some thirty-five years away. Illustration Bill and I got together often and talked of the old happy days. Well, they enlarged the house, that was already big enough for a hotel, and built stables and kennels and pheasant yards and houses for ducks and geese and peacocks. They stocked up with fourteen horses, twelve hounds, nine collies, four setters, nineteen servants, innumerable fowls, and four motor cars, and started in pursuit of happiness. You see, they had no children, and all these beasts and birds were intended to supply the deficiency in human life and assist in the campaign. Well, somehow, it didn't succeed, and one day Bill came into my office with a worried look. He confided to me the well-known fact that his wife was nervous and unhappy. The doctors don't do her any good, and I thought I'd try a lawyer, said he. Do you want to sue fate for damages or indict her for malicious persecution? I asked. Neither, he said, but you know the laws of nature as well as the laws of men. I appeal to you to tell me what law my wife has broken, and how she can make amends. You surprise me, I said. You and the madam can have everything you want, and still you're unhappy. What can we have that you can't? You can eat as much, and sleep better, and wear as many clothes, and see and hear as well as we can. Ah, but in the matter of quality I'm way behind the flag, Bill. You can wear cloth or gold, and Russian sables, and have champagne and terrapin every meal, and fiddlers to play while ye eat it, and a brass band to march around the place with ye, and splendid horses to ride, and dogs to roar on ahead and attract the attention of the populace. You can have a lot of bankrupt noblemen to rub and manicure and adulate and chiropodize ye, and people who'd have to laugh at your wit or look for another job, and authors to read from their own works. Bill interrupted with a gentle protest, S.O.C., how comforting you are! Well, if all that is losing its charm, what's the matter with travel? Don't talk to me about travel, said Bill. We've worn ruts in the earth now. Our feet have touched every land. How many meals do you eat a day? Three. Try six, I suggested. He laughed, and I thought I was making progress, so I kept on. How many motor cars have ye? Four. Get eight, I advised, as Bill put on the loud pedal. You've got nineteen servants, I believe, try thirty-eight. You have twenty-one dogs, get forty-two. You can afford it. Come, be serious, said Bill. Don't poke fun at me. Ah, but your wife must be able to prove that she has more dogs and horses and servants and motor cars, and that she eats more meals in a day than any other woman in Connecticut. Then maybe she'll be happy. You know it's a woman's ambition to excel. We have too many fool things now, said Bill, mournfully. She's had enough of them. God knows. Something in Bill's manner made me sit up and stare at him. Of course, you don't mean that she wants another husband, I exclaimed. I'm not so sure of that, said Bill, sadly. Sometimes I'm almost inclined to think she does. Well, that's one direction in which I should advise strict economy, said I. You can multiply the dogs and the horses, and the servants and the motor cars, but in the matter o' wives and husbands we ought to stick to the simple life. Don't let her go to competing with those Fifth Avenue ladies. 
I don't know what's the matter, Bill went on. She's had everything that her heart could wish. But, of course, she has had only one husband, and most of her friends have had two or three. They've outmarried her. It may be that, secretly, she's just a little annoyed about that. Many of her old friends are consumed with envy. Their bones are rotten with it. They smile upon her. They accept her hospitality. They declare their love, and they long for her downfall. Now, my wife has a certain pride and joy in all this, but naturally it breeds a sense of loneliness, the bitter loneliness that one may find only in a crowd. She turns more and more to me, and between ourselves she seems to have made up her mind that I don't love her, and I can't convince her that I do. Well, Bill, I should guess that you have always been fond of your wife, and true to her. And you are right, said Bill. I've loved with all my heart and with a conscience. It's my only pride, for of course, I might have been gay. In society I enjoy a reputation for firmness. It is no idle boast. Well, Bill, you can't do anything more for her in the matter of food, raiment, beasts, or birds, and as to jewelry she carries a pretty heavy stock. I often feel the need of smoked glasses when I look at her. You'll have to make up your mind as to whether she needs more or less. I'll study the situation myself. It may be that I can suggest something by and by, just as a matter of friendship. Your common sense may discern what is needed, said Bill. I wish you'd come at least once a week to dinner. My wife would be delighted to have you, S.O.C. You are one of the few men who interest her. She was a pretty woman, distinguished for a look of weariness and a mortal fear of fat. She had done nothing so hard and so long that, to her, Nothing was all there was in the world, save fat. She was so busy about it that she couldn't sit still and rest. She wandered from one chair to another, smoking a cigarette, and now and then glancing at her image in a mirror and slyly feeling her ribs to see if she had gained flesh that day. She liked me because I was unlike any other man she had met. I poked fun at her folly and all the grandeur of the place. I amused her as much as she amused me, perhaps. Anyhow, we got to be good friends, and the next Sunday we all drove out in a motor car to see Lizzie. Mrs. Bill wanted to meet her. Lizzie had become famous. She was walking up and down the lawn with the infant in a perambulator, and the small boy toddling along behind her. We left Mrs. Bill with Lizzie and the kids and set out for a tramp over the big farm. When we returned we found the ladies talking earnestly in the house. Illustration we set out for a tramp over the big farm. Before we left I called Lizzie aside for a minute. How do you get along with these babies? I asked. They're the life of our home. My father and mother think they couldn't live without them. And they're good practice for you, I suggested. It's time you were planning for yourself, Lizzie. I've no prospects, said she. How is that? Why, there's only one boy that I care for, and he has had enough of me. You don't mean Dan? Yes, she whispered with trembling lips and turned away. What's the matter? She pulled herself together and answered in half a moment. Oh, I don't know. He doesn't come often. He goes around with other girls. Well, I said, it's the same old story. He's only trying to keep up with Lizzie. You've done some going around yourself. I know, but I couldn't help it. He knows, and he couldn't help it, I says. The boys have flocked around you and the girls have flocked around Dan. They were afraid he'd get lonesome. If I were you I'd put a mortgage on him and foreclose it as soon as possible. 
It's too late, says she. I hear he's mortgaged. You'd better search the records, I says, and if it ain't so, stop being careless. You've put your father on his feet. Now look out for yourself. I think he's angry on account of the ham war, says she. Why do you think that? She told me the facts, and I laughed till the tears came to my eyes. Nonsense, I says, Dan will like that. You wait till I tell him, and he'll be up here with his throttle wide open. Do you suppose he'd spend Christmas with us? She asked, with a very sober look. You know, his mother and father have gone south, and he'll be all alone. Ask him at once, call him on the phone, I advised, and bade her goodbye. The happiness o Lizzie and the charm o those kids had suggested an idea. I made up my mind that I'd try to put Mr. and Mrs. Bill on the job o keeping up with Lizzie. That's a wonderful woman, said Mrs. Bill, as we drove away. I envy her, she's so strong and well and happy. She loves those babies, and is in the saddle every afternoon, helping with the work o the farm. Why don't you get into the saddle and be as well and strong as she is? Bill asked. Because I've no object. It's only a way of doing nothing, said Mrs. Bill. I'm weary of riding for exercise. There never was a human being who could keep it up long. It's like you and your dumbbells. To my knowledge you haven't set a foot in your gymnasium for a month. As a matter of fact, you're as tired of play as I am, every bit. Why don't you go into Wall Street and get poor? Tired of play, Bill exclaimed. Why, Grace, night before last you were playing bridge until three o'clock in the morning. Well, it's a way of doing nothing skillfully and on the competitive plan, said she. It gives me a chance to measure my capacity. When I get through I am so weary that often I can go to sleep without thinking. It seems to me that brains are a great nuisance to one who has no need of them. Of course, by and by, they'll atrophy and disappear like the tales of our ancestors. Meanwhile, I suppose they are bound to get sore. Mine is such a fierce, ill-bred, impudent sort of a brain, and it's as busy as a bat in a belfry. I often wish that I had one of those soft, flexible, paralytic, cocker spaniel brains, like that of our friend Mrs. Seavey. She is so happy with it, so unterrified. She is equally at home in bed or on horseback, reading the last bestseller or pouring tea and compliments. Now just hear how this brain of mine is going on about that poor, inoffensive creature. But that's the way it treats me. It's a perfect heathen of a brain. Bill and I looked at each other and laughed. Her talk convinced me of one thing, that her trouble was not the lack of a brain. You're always making fun of me, she said. Why don't you give me something to do? Suppose you wash the dishes, said Bill. Would it please you? Anything that pleases you pleases me. I saw that she, too, was going to try to keep up with Lizzie, and I decided that I'd help her. When we arrived at the villa we made our way to its front door through a pack of collie dogs out for an airing. By the way, I said, when we sat down to luncheon at Bill's house, congratulate me. I'm a candidate for new honors. Illustration, I'm a candidate for new honors. Those of a husband? I've been hoping for that, you stubborn old bachelor, said Mrs. Bill, expectantly. No, I answered, I'm to be a father. Bill put down his fork and turned and stared at me. Mrs. Bill leaned back in her chair with a red look of surprise. The gladdest, happiest papa in Connecticut, I added. Mrs. Bill covered her face with her napkin and began to shake. SSOC, have you fallen? 
Bill stammered. No, I've riz, I said. Don't blame me, old man, I had to do it. I've adopted some orphans. I'm going to have an orphanage on the hill, but it will take a year to finish it. I'm going to have five children. They're beauties, and I know that I'm going to love them. I propose to take them out of the atmosphere of indigence and wholesale charity. They'll have a normal, pleasant home, and a hired mother and me to look after them. The personal touch, you know. I expect to have a lot of fun with them. But what a responsibility, said Mrs. Bill. I know, but I feel the need of it. Of course it's different with you, very different. You have all these dogs and horses to be responsible for and to give you amusement. I couldn't afford that. Then, too, I'm a little odd, I guess. I can get more fun out of one happy, human soul than out of all the dogs and horses in creation. But children! Why, they're so subject to sickness and accident and death, said Mrs. Bill. And they're subject, also, to health and life and safety, I answered. Yes, but you know, they'll be getting into all kinds of trouble. They'll worry you. True, but as for worry, I don't mind that much, I said. My best days were those that were full of worry. Now that I've won a competence and my worries are gone, so is half my happiness. You can't have sunshine without shadows. There was one of my neighbors who was troubled with boils. He had to have them cured right away, and a doctor gave him some medicine that healed them up, but he was worse off than ever. The boils began to do business inside of him, and he rushed back to the doctor. What's the matter now? said the medical man. Outside I'm sound as a dollar, said my neighbor. But it seems as if all hell had moved into me. Now cares are like boils. It don't do to get rid of them too quick. They're often a great relief to the inside of a man, and it's better to have them on the surface than weighed down in your marrow. Bill and his wife looked into each other's eyes for half a minute, but neither spoke. I'm going to ask a favor of you, I said. I see that there's nobody living in the old farmhouse out back of the garden. I wish you'd let me put my little family into it until I can build a home for him. Oh, my missus, Bill exclaimed. Those children would be running all over the lawns and the garden. They'd destroy my roses. True, but after all, they're more beautiful than the roses, I urged. They're more graceful in form, more charming in color. Then, too, roses cannot laugh or weep or play. Roses cannot look up at you out of eyes full of the light of heaven and brighter than your jewels. Roses may delight, but they cannot love you or know that you love them. Dear woman, my roses will wander over the lawns. Their colors will be flickering about you, and the music of their voices will surround the villa some days. But God knows, they'll look better, far better than the dogs or the bronze lions, or the roses. I shall dress them well. I think he's right, said Bill. He's most disturbing and persuasive anyway, the revolutionist, said Mrs. Bill, if it's really a favor to you, Mr. Potter, I shall agree to it. But you must have a trusty woman. I really cannot assume any responsibility. I thanked her and promised to assume all responsibility, and Mrs. Warburton was to get the old house ready at once. Three days later I drove to the villa with my matron and the babies. Rather quick work, wasn't it? I hadn't let any grass grow under my plan. When we lit at the front door, every youngster broke out in a loud hurrah of merriment. The three-year-old boy, beautiful beyond all words, got aboard one of the crouched lions and began to shout. 
A little girl made a grab at the morning glories on a Doric column, while her sister had mounted a swinging seat and tumbled to the floor. The other two were chattering like parrots. Honestly, I was scared. I was afraid that Mrs. Bill would come down and jump into hysterics. I snaked the boy off the lion's back and rapped on him for order. The matron got busy with the others. In a jiffy it seemed as if they had all begun to wail and roar. I trembled when a maid opened the door and I saw Mrs. Bill coming down the staircase. I wouldn't have been surprised to have seen the bronze lion get up and run. Illustration. Three days later I drove to the villa. The saints defend us, exclaimed Mrs. Bill in the midst of the uproar. They're not at their best, I shouted, but here they are. Yes, I knew they were there, said Mrs. Bill. This is the music of which you were speaking the other day. Take them right around to the old house, if you please. I'm sorry, but I must ask you to excuse me this morning. I succeeded in quelling the tumult and introduced the matron, who received a nod and a look that made a dent in her, and away we went around the great house, a melancholy, shuffling troop, now silent as the grave. It looked dark for my little battalion with which I had been hoping to conquer this world within the villa gates. They were of the great army of the friendless. I asked Mrs. Hammond, the matron, to see that they did as little damage as possible, and left them surrounded by every comfort. They had a telephone and unlimited credit at the stores, and Mrs. Hammond was a motherly soul of much experience with children, and I knew that I could trust her. I was to dine with the Warburtons later in the week, and before I entered the big house that evening I went around to the lodge. The children were all well and asleep in their beds, and the matron apparently happy and contented. She said that Mrs. Bill had met them in the grounds that day and she told how the little three-year-old boy had exerted his charms upon my lady Warburton, who had spent half an hour leading him through the gardens. Illustration. The boy had exerted his charms upon my lady Warburton. How beautiful he was lying asleep in his bed that evening, his face like the old dreams of Eros, with silken, yellow, curly locks on his brow, and long dark lashes, soft as the silk of the growing corn, and a red mouth, so wonderfully curved, so appealing in its silence. Beneath it were teeth like carved ivory. Those baby lips seemed to speak to me and to say, O man that was born of a woman, and like me was helpless, give me your love or look not upon me. But I could not help looking, and as I looked he smiled in what dreams, of things past or to come, I wish it were in me to tell you. Something touched me, like a strong hand. I went out under the trees in the darkness and stood still and wondered what had happened to me. Great Scott, me, Socrates Potter, lawyer, statesman, horse trader. With that little captain I could take a city, I whispered, and I got up and brushed myself off, as it were, and walked around to the front door of the great house. Therein I was to witness an amusing comedy. The butler wore a new sort of grin as he took my wraps at the door. There were guests, mostly from New York and Greenwich. We had taken our seats at the table when, to my surprise, Mrs., Bill, in a grand costume, with a tiara on her head and a collar of diamonds on her neck, began to serve the caviar. Ladies and gentlemen, said she, this is to convince Mr. Socrates Potter that I can do useful work. I'm dieting anyhow, and I can't eat. My friend, I observe that you are serving us, and we are proud, but you do not appear to be serving a purpose, I said. Now, don't spoil it all with your relentless logic, she began. You see, 
I am going to take a hand in this keeping up with Lizzie business. One of our ladies had to give up a dinner party the other day, because her butlers had left suddenly. Why didn't you and a maid serve the dinner yourselves? I said. Impossible, was her proud answer. It would have been a fine lark. I would have done it. I said. I'd like to see you. She laughed. You shall. I answered, and here I am. Now, there were certain smiles which led me to suspect that it was a blow aimed at one of the ladies who sat at the table with us, but of that I am not sure. I'm also getting my hand in, our hostess went on. Bill and I are going to try the simple life. Tomorrow we move into the log cabin, where we shall do our own work, and send the servants off for a week's holiday. I'm going to do the cooking, I've been learning how, and I shall make the beds, and Bill is to chop the wood, and help wash the dishes and we shall sleep out of doors. It will, I hope, be a lesson to some of these proud people around us who are living beyond their means. That's good, isn't it? Excellent, I exclaimed, as the others laughed. Incidentally, it will help me to reduce, she added. And it promises to reduce Bill, I said. It will kill Bill, I fear, but it will pay. You might change your plan a little, just a little, and save poor Bill. Think of eating biscuit and flapjacks from the hand of a social leader. Between the millstones of duty and indigestion he will be sadly ground, but with the axe he may, if he will, defend his constitution. Well, what's a constitution between husband and wife? she asked. Nothing, doubt I says. Bear in mind I wouldn't discourage you. With the aid of the axe his ancestors were able to withstand the assaults of pork and beans and pie. If he uses it freely, he is safe. You see, I shall have him in a position where he must work or die, said Mrs. Bill. He'll die, said a guest. I call it a worthy enterprise whatever the expense, I said. It will set a fashion here and a very good one. In this community there are so many dear ladies who are prisoners of gravitation. They rely almost exclusively on hired hands and feet, and are losing the use of their own. What confusion will spread among them when they learn that Mrs. William Henry Warburton— the richest woman in Fairfield County, and the daughter of a bishop, has been doing her own work. What consternation! What dismay! What female profanity! What a revision of habits and resolutions! Why, there's been nothing like it since the descent of Lizzie. I think it's terrible, said a fat lady from Louisville, distinguished for her appetite, and often surreptitiously referred to as the Mammoth Cave of Kentucky the idea of trying to make it fashionable to endure drudgery. I think we women have all we can do now. To be respectable, said Mrs. Bill, but let's try to do something else. Why don't you form a ladies' protective union, Bill suggested, and choose the tiara for a symbol, and strike for no hours a day and all your husbands can earn. And the employment of skilled idlers only, Mrs. Bill put in. They must all know how to do nothing in the modern way by discussing the rights of women and the novel of lust, and the divorce's past and perspective, by playing at bridge and benevolence. How absurd it all is! I'm not going to be an overgrown child any longer. I saw that Mrs. Bill was making progress, and with her assistance I began to hope for better things in that neighborhood. You've got to reach the women somehow, you see, before you can improve the social conditions of a community. I love them, but many are overgrown children, as Mrs. Bill had put it, and doing nothing with singular skill and determination and often with appalling energy. Our pretty hostess had been helping a butler, 
as this talk went on, and presently one of the other ladies joined her, and never was any company so picturesquely and amusingly served. I've quite fallen in love with that three-year-old boy, said Mrs. Bill, as we rose from the table. I had a good romp with him today. I wish you'd go over to the old farmhouse with me. I want to show you something, I said. In a moment we were in wraps and making our way across the lawn. I was glad to get a rap at that Mrs. Barrow, she whispered, as we walked along. She's just got back her jewels that were stolen, and has begun to go out again. She's the vainest, proudest fool of a woman, and her husband is always borrowing money. Did you know it? Some, that is, fairly well, I said with bitterness. So does Bill, and she goes about with the airs of a grand lady and the silliest notions. Really, it was for her benefit that I helped the butler. If it weren't for Bill I'd call you an angel, I said. You have it in your power to redeem the skilled idlers of this community. We reached the little house so unlike the big, baronial thing we had left. It was a home. Mrs. Hammond sat by the reading lamp in its cozy sitting room before an open fire. She led us into the bedroom with the lamp in her hand. There lay the boy as I had left him, still smiling with a lovelier, softer red in his cheeks than that of roses. Illustration. She led us into the bedroom. See the color and the dimples, I said. She looked from one to another, and suddenly the strong appeal of their faces fell upon her. She raised the boy from his bed, and he put his arms around her neck and began to talk in a tender baby treble. Did you ever hear the voice of a child just out of dreamland, when it expresses, not complaint, but love and contentment? Well, sir, it is the sweetest, the most compelling note in all nature, I believe. It is like a muted violin, voice of God or voice of man. Which is it? I dare not say, but I do know that the song of the hermit thrush is but sounding brass compared with that. I felt its power, and I said to myself, I will waste my life no longer. I will marry. She, too, had felt it. The little captain had almost overcome her. She laid him down, and we turned away. We walked through the garden paths, and neither spoke, but in the stillness I could hear trumpets of victory. We entered the great hall and sat with the others by its fireside, but took little part in the talk. When I made my adieus she shook my hand warmly and said I was very good to them. Save for its good example, the log cabin experiment was not a success. They slept with all the doors and windows open, and one night a skunk came in and got under the bed. Mrs. Bill discovered that they had company, and Bill got up and lit the lantern, and followed the clue to its source. He threatened and argued and appealed to the skunk's better nature with a doughnut, but the little beast sat unmoved in his corner. The place seemed to suit him. Bill got mad and flung the axe at him. It was a fatal move, fatal to the skunk in the cabin and the experiment, and a blow to the sweetness and sociological condition of Connecticut. They returned to the big house, and by and by told me of their adventure. Don't be discouraged, I said. You will find skunks in every walk of life, but when you do, always throw down your cards and quit the game. They can deal from the bottom of the pack. You haven't a ghost of a show with them. Being driven out of the cabin, Mrs. Bill gave most of her leisure to the farmhouse, where I had spent an hour or more every day. Suddenly I saw that a wonderful thing had happened to me. I was in love with those kids, and they with me. The whole enterprise had been a bluff conceived in the interest of the Warburtons. I hadn't really intended to build a house, 
But suddenly I got busy with all the mechanics I could hire in point view, and the house began to grow like a mushroom. Another wonderful thing happened. Mrs. Warburton fell in love with the kids and they with her. She romped with them on the lawn. She took them out to ride every day. She put them to bed every night. She insisted upon buying their clothes. She bought them a pony and a little omnibus. She built them a playhouse for their comfort. The whole villa began to revolve around the children. They called her mama and they called me papa. A sufficiently singular situation. Six in which the pursuit of Lizzie becomes highly serious. Dan had been out of town, and immediately on his return he came to my office. How's business? I asked. Well, the ham war was a little hard on us, but we're picking up, says he. They're still selling hams way below a decent price over at Henshaw's. I don't see how they can do it. I do, I says. Please explain, says Dan. Don't you know that Lizzie was buying most of those hams that you sold way below the wholesale price, and that she's now making a good profit on them, I says. Great Scott, Dan exclaimed, as he sank in a chair. The fact is, Dan, the only way to keep up with that girl is to marry her, says I. Get busy. If you don't, somebody else will. Put a mortgage on her and foreclose it as soon as possible. As a float and asset, Lizzie is dangerous. Dan picked up his hat and started for the door. Tell her she must do business or you'll cut the price of pettigrews, I suggested. Good idea, he answered, as he went away. Meanwhile, Mr. and Mrs., Bill Warburton were hot on the trail of Lizzie. Bill came to me one day and said, Those babies have solved the problem. My wife is happy and in excellent health. She sleeps and eats as well as ever, and her face has a new look. You have observed it? Certainly, Bill, and you're going to hear some rather chesty and superior talk. I saw what was the matter long ago. She was motor sick, and tiara sick, and dog sick, and horse sick. She was sick of idleness and rich food and adulation. She has discovered that there are only three real luxuries. Work, children, motherhood. That to shirk responsibility is to forfeit happiness. I have been a little disappointed in you, Bill. Your father was a minister. He had the love of men in his soul. You seem to have taken to dogs and horses with an affection almost brotherly. I don't blame you so much. When men get rich they naturally achieve a passion for the things that money will buy. They think they've got to improve the breed o' dogs and horses, and they're apt to forget the breed o' men. You've been pursuing happiness with dogs, horses, and motor cars. You never can catch her in that way, never. Don't you remember, Bill, that in the old days we didn't pursue happiness? Why, happiness pursued us and generally caught us. Some days she didn't succeed until we were all tired out and then she led us away into the wonderful land o' dreams, and it was like heaven. You never get happiness by pursuing her. That's one dead sure thing. Happiness is never captured. She comes unbidden or not at all. She travels only in one path, and you haven't found it. Bill, we've strayed a little. Let's try to locate the trail o' happiness. I believe we're getting near it. Last year a cult of yours won a classic event of the turf. How much finer it would be if you had some boys in training for the sublime contests of life, and it wouldn't cost half so much. You know, there are plenty of homeless boys who need your help. Wouldn't it pay better to develop a Henry M. Stanley, once a homeless orphan, than a Silvator or an Ormond or a Rayon d'Or? Pound away, said Bill. Nail and rivet me to the cross. I haven't a word to say, 
except this. What in the devil do you want me to do? Well, you might help to redeem New England, I said. The Yankee blood is running out, and it's a pity. Today the Yankees are almost a childless race. Do you know the reason? He shook his head. It costs so much to live, I says. We can't afford children. To begin with, the boys and girls don't marry so young. They can't stand the expense. They're all keeping up with Lizzie, but on the wrong road. The girls are worse than the boys. They go out old the private school and beat the bush for a husband. At first they hope to drive out a duke or an earl. By and by they're willing to take a common millionaire. At last they conclude that if they can't get a stag they'll take a rabbit. Then we learn that they're engaged to a young man and are going to marry as soon as he can afford it. He wears himself out in the struggle and is apt to be a nervous wreck before the day arrives. They are nearing or past thirty when he decides that with economy and no children they can afford to maintain a home. The bells ring, the lovely strains from Lohengrin. Fill the grand, new house, O oh God, and overflow into the quiet streets, O oh the village, and we hear in them what Wagner never thought of, the joyful death march of a race. Think of it, Bill, this old earth is growing too costly for the use, O oh man. We prefer autos and diamonds and knickknacks. Life has become a kind of a circus where only the favored can pay the price of admission, and here in America, where about all the great men we have had were bred in cabins, and everything worth a fish hook came out oh poverty. You have it in your power to hasten the end oh this wickedness, I said. For one thing, you can make the middleman let go of our throats in this community. Near here are hundreds of acres oh land going to waste. Buy it and make it produce wool, meat, flax, grains, and vegetables. Start a market in a small factory here, and satisfy yourself as to what is a just price for the necessaries of life. If the tradesmen are overcharging us, they'll have to reduce prices. Put your brain and money into it. Make it a business. At least, you'll demonstrate what it ought to cost to live here in New England. If it's so much that the average Yankee can't afford it by honest work, if we must all be lawyers or bankers or brokers or grop in middlemen in order to live, let's start a big asylum for the upright and give them a chance to die comfortably. But it isn't so. I can raise potatoes right here for 30 cents a bushel, as good as those you pay 40 cents a peck for at Sam Henshaw's. You'll set an example of inestimable value in this republic of ours. Dan has begun the good work and demonstrated that it will pay. It's a good idea. I'm with you, he said. If we can get the boys and girls to marry while the bloom is on the rye, it's worthwhile, and I wouldn't wonder if indirectly we'd increase the crop of Yankees and the yield of happiness to the acre. Bill, you're a good fellow, I said. You only need to be reminded of your duty. You're like many another man. And I'll think you the best fellow in the world if you'll let us keep those kids. We enjoy them. We've been having a lot of fun lately. I can't do that, I said, but I'll keep them here until we can get some more. There are thousands of them as beautiful, as friendless, as promising as these were. I wish you could let us have these, he urged. We wouldn't adopt them, probably, but we'd do our best for them, our very best. I can't, I answered. Why? Because they've got hold of my old heart, that's why. I hadn't looked for that, Bill, but the little cusses have conquered me. Great God! he exclaimed. I hadn't thought of that. And my wife told me this morning that she loves that three-year-old boy as dearly as she loves me. They've all won her heart. What shall I do? 
Let me think it over, I said, and shook his hand and left, and I knew that I was likely to indulge in the making of history right away. I went home and sat down and wrote the best brief of my career, and appealed to the Supreme Court of this planet, a woman's heart. It was a letter to one whose name I honored although I had not written it in years. Next morning I plunged into a lawsuit and was working night and day, until the jury came in with a verdict and court adjourned for the Christmas holidays. And that day a decision was handed down in my appeal to the court of last resort. It was a cablegram from an Italian city, and a verdict in my favor. I am to get in that case the best fee on record, a wife and the love of a dear and beautiful woman. We went to school together, and I am ashamed that I didn't ask her to marry me years ago. So much for me had Lizzie and the kids accomplished. I was to dine with the Warburton's Christmas Eve, and be Santa Claus for the children. I bought a set o' whiskers and put on my big fur coat, and two sets o' bells on the mare, and drove to the villa, with a full pack in the buggy and a fuller heart in my breast. Bill and Mrs. Bill and I went over to the farmhouse together with our arms full. The children were in a room upstairs with Mrs. Hammond waiting for Santa Claus. Below we helped the two maids, who were trimming the Christmas tree, and a wonderful tree it was when we were done with it. Why, sir, you'd have thought a rainbow was falling into a thicket on the edge of a lake. My friend, it was the tree of all fruits. We filled the little stockings hanging on the mantel. Then they helped me to put on my beard and the greatcoat and cap and the pack over all, and Mrs. Bill and I went out of doors. We stood still and listened for a moment. Two baby voices were calling out of an upper window, Santa Claus, please come, Santa Claus. Then we heard the window close and the chatter above stairs, but we stood still. Mrs. Bill seemed to be laughing, but I observed that her handkerchief had the center of the stage in this little comedy. In half a minute I stole down the road and picked up the bells that lay beside it, and came prancing to the door with a great jingle, and in I went and took my stand by the Christmas tree. We could hear the hurry of small feet, and eager, half-hushed voices in the hall overhead. Then down the stairway came my slender battalion in the last scene of the siege. Their eyes were wide with wonder, their feet slow with fear. The little captain of three years ran straight to Mrs. Billum lay hold of her gown, and partly hid himself in its folds, and stood peeking out at me. It was a masterful bit of strategy. I wonder how he could have done it so well. She raised him in her arms and held him close. A great music box in a corner began to play. Oh, Tannenbaum. Oh, Tannenbaum. We grunts in Dane Bledder. Illustration. Their eyes were wide with wonder. Then with laughter and merry jests we emptied the pack, and gathered from the tree whose fruit has fed the starving human heart for more than a thousand years, and how it filled those friends oh mine. Well, it was the night of my life, and when I turned to go, its climax fell upon me. Mrs. Bill kneeled at my feet and said with tears in her eyes, on her lips and voice trembling, Oh, Santa Claus, you have given me many things, but I beg for more, five more. The city had fallen. Its queen was on her knees. The victorious army was swarming into the open gate of her arms. The hosts of doubt and fear were fleeing. I refuse to tell you all that happened in the next minute or two. A witness has some rights when testifying against his own manhood. I helped the woman to her feet and said, They are yours. I shall be happy enough, and anyhow, I do not think I shall need them now. And so I left them as happy as human beings have any right to be.
At last they had caught up with Lizzie, and I, too, was in a fair way to overtake her. And how fared Dan in his pursuit of that remarkable maiden? Why, that very night Lizzie and Dan had been shaken the trio love, and I guessed the fruit on it was fairly ripe and mellow. Next day they came up to my house together. Dan couldn't hold his happiness, and slopped over as soon as he was inside the door. Mr. Potter says he, with more than Christmas merriment, we're going to be married next month. Before I could say a word he had gathered Lizzie up in his arms and kissed her, and she kissed back as prompt as if it had been a slap in a game o' tag. You silly man, she says, you could have had me long ago. If I'd only a known it, he says. Oh, the ignorance owes some men, she says, looking into his eyes. It exceeds the penetration o' some women, I says. They came together agey and quite spiteful. I separated em. Quit, I says. Stop picking on each other. It provokes you and me too. You're like a pair o' kids turned loose in a candy store. Behave yourselves and listen to reason. Lizzie turned upon me as if she thought it was none o' my business. Then she smiled and hid her face on the manly breast o' Dan. Now Lizzie, I says, get your mind and work in order as soon as ye can. Dan, you go over and stand by the window. I want you to keep at least ten paces apart, and please don't fire till ye get the signal. I'm going to give a prize for the simplest wedding that ever took place in Pointview, I says. It will be five hundred dollars in gold for the bride. Don't miss it. The marriage will occur at noon, says Lizzie. There'll be nothing but simple morning frocks. The girls can wear calico if they wish. No jewels, no laces, no elaborate breakfast. And no presents, but mine, that cost over five dollars each, I says. And that's the way it was, like old times. No hard work wasted in getting ready, no vanity fair, no hard burning, no bitter envy, no cussing about the expense. There was nothing but love and happiness and goodwill at that wedding. It was just as God would have a wedding, I fancy, if he were the master o' ceremonies, as he ought to be. They are now settled on a thousand acres o' land here in New England. Dan has eight gangs o' human oxen from Italy at work for him getting in his fertilizers. He rides a horse all day and is as courty as a Roman gladiator. Do you know what it means? Ten thousand like him are going into the same work. The greed o' the middleman will be checked and one o' oh, these days the old earth ll be lopsided with the fruitfulness of America. Seven in which the Honorable Socrates Potter catches up with Lizzie. Early in June I was invited to the wedding of Miss Betsy Smead and the Honorable Socrates Potter. Miss Betsy had inherited a large estate, and lived handsomely in the Smead homestead, built by her grandfather. She was a woman of taste and refinement, but, in deference to Socrates, no doubt, the invitations had been printed in the office of the local newspaper. There could have been no better example of honest simplicity. The good news sent me in quest of my friend the lawyer. I found him in Miss Betsy's library. He was in high spirits and surrounded by treasures of art. Yes, I'm in luck, he began. Miss Betsy is a dear soul. We're bound to be happy in spite of all this polished brass and plate and mahogany. There's nothing here that I can put my feet on except the rugs or the slippery floor or the fender. Everything has the appearance o' being more valuable than I am. If it was mine I'd take an axe and bring things down to my level. I'm kind o' scared for fear I'll spl something or other. Sometimes I feel as if I'd like to crawl under the grand piano and get out o' danger. 
Now look at old Grandpa Smeed in his gold frame on the wall. He's got me buffaloed. Watches every move I make. Betsy laughs and tells me I can SPL anything I want to, but Grandpa is ever reminding me o oh, the ancient law o oh, the Smeeds and the Persians. Mr. Potter, I owe so much to you, I said. I want to make you a present, something that you and your wife will value. I've thought about it for weeks. Can you? He interrupted me with a smile and these gently spoken words. Friends who wish to express their goodwill and gifts are requested to consider the large and elegant stock of goods in the local 99-cent store. Everything from socks to sunbursts may be found there. Necklaces and tiaras are not prohibited if guaranteed to be real 99-centers. These days nobody has cheap things. That makes them rare and desirable. All diamonds should weigh at least half a pound. Smaller stones are too common. Everybody has them, you know. Why, the wife of the butcher's clerk is paying fifty cents a week on a solitaire. Gold, silver, and automobiles will be politely but firmly refused. Too common, far too common. Nothing is desired likely to increase envy or bank loans or other forms of contemporaneous crime in point view. We would especially avoid increasing the risk and toil of overworked and industrious burglars. They have enough to do as it is, poor fellows, they hardly get a night's rest. Miss Betsy's home has already given M a lot o' trouble. His humor had relieved its pressure in the deep, good-natured chuckle of the Yankee, as he strode up and down the floor with both hands in his trousers' pockets. Look at that old duffer, he went on, as he pointed at the stern features of Grandpa Smeed. Wouldn't you think he'd smile now and then? Maybe he'll cheer up after I've lived here a while. He moved a couple of chairs to give him more room, and went on. Now, there's Bill Warburton. I supposed he was a friend o' mine, but we had a fight in school, years ago, and I guess he's never got over it. Anyhow, I caught him trying to slip an automobile on me, just caught him in time. There he was trying to rob me o' the use o' my legs in about fifteen hundred a year for expenses and build me up into a fat man with indigestion and liver complaint. I served an injunction on him. Another man has tried to make me the lifelong slave of a silver service. He'd gone down to Fifth Avenue and ordered it, and I suppose it would a cost thousands. Tried to sneak it on me. Can ye think o anything meaner? It would a cost me a pretty penny for insurance and storage the rest o' my life, and then think of our, ahem, our poor children. Why, it would be as bad as a mortgage debt. Every time I left home I would have worried about that silver service. Every time the dog barked at night I would have trembled in my bed for the safety o' the silver service. Every time we had company I would have been afraid that somebody was going to scratch the silver service. And when I saw a stranger in town, I would have said to myself, Aha! It may be that he has heard of our silver service and has come to steal it. I would have begun to regard my servants and many other people with dread and suspicion. Why, once I knew a man who had a silver service— and they carried it up three nights to the attic every night for fifty years. They figured that they'd walked eleven hundred miles up and down stairs with the silver service in their hands. The thought that they couldn't take it with them hastened and embittered their last days. Then the heirs learned that it wasn't genuine after all. Of course, I put another injunction upon that man. If we've ever done anything to you, forgive us, I said, but please do not cripple us with gold or silver. He stopped and put his hand upon my shoulder and continued, My young friend, if you would make us a gift, 
I wish it might be something that will give us pleasure and not trouble, something that money cannot buy and thieves cannot steal. Your love and good wishes to be ours as long as you live and we live, at least. We shall need no token of that but your word and conduct. I assured him of all he asked for with a full heart. Should I come dressed? Was my query. Dressed, yes, but not dressed up, he answered. Neither white neckies nor rubber boots will be required. How are Mr. and Mrs. Bill? Happier than ever, said he. Incidentally, they've learned that life isn't all a joke, for one of those little brownies led them to the gate of the great mystery and they've begun to look through it in our wiser folks. Two other women are building orphan lodges on their grounds, and there's no telling where the good work will end. We were interrupted by the entrance of Miss Betsy Smead. She was a comely, bustling, cheerful little woman of about forty-five, with a playful spirit like that of Socrates himself. This is my financy, said Socrates. She has waited for me twenty-five years. And he kept me waiting, the wretch, just because my grandfather left me his money, said Miss Betsy. I shall never forgive that man said Socrates, as he shook his fist at the portrait. And she was his only grandchild, too. And think how comfortable he might have been here, and how I've worried about him. Miss Betsy went on. Here, S.O.C., put your feet on this piano seat. Now you look at home. When I achieve the reformation of Betsy, I shall have a kitchen table to put my feet on, said S.O.C., as I left them. Then I decided that I would send him a kitchen table. The End End of Project Gutenberg's Keeping Up with Lizzie by Irving Bockeler